Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Dr. Nate Regeer, the founder and CEO of Next Element and the developer and co-creator of the Compassion Mindset System. Hello, Nate. Thank you for joining me on the show today. You are welcome. What a pleasure to be with you. I think it's going to be fun. And I know that sounds a little nutty to some people that we're going to talk about conflict and it's going to be fun, but that is my perspective. And I am so glad to connect with you because I think you have a particularly interesting angle on conflict. But before we get to those specifics, I will ask you to tell us a bit about how you have arrived at where you are today professionally. Yeah, thanks. It's, it has been an interesting journey. I'm 52, and I started my life barefoot and shirtless in Africa. My parents were missionaries uh, with the Mennonite church, and so I grew up a kid in Africa. And the Mennonite church, for those that don't know, is a, is a denomination, a Christian denomination really focused on service and nonviolent, and nonviolent conflict resolution and peace. And so I grew up around kind of that philosophy and really saw role modeled by my parents just different ways to deal with conflict that didn't involve violence. Yet, I also grew up around violence. A lot of my life in Africa saw horrific kinds of things in different places. In Southern Africa, I I was there in high school while Nelson Mandela was in prison still. Mm. Um, And so I think I had embedded in me this, that there was a conflict inside of me, which was always, there's got to be a better, different way for dealing with conflict. And yet, I saw it everywhere. And so I, I think that's where the seeds got planted, that just trying to find the positive potential in conflict and not see so many casualties. Wow. That is an interesting introduction in life to start out that way. So when did you, I'll say, break away a little bit from your primary family and into the world on your own? Well, when, when we returned from Africa, this is kind of when I started college, and I went to a, a private liberal arts college, studied, um, majored in psychology. I really felt like I was curious about the human condition and why we did what we did. Went on to get my doctorate in clinical psychology and, again, just became fascinated in the dynamics of human behavior and motivation and pathology. Um, and so I continued to nurture that. And then I practiced for 11 years as a psych- clinical psychologist, but it never really fit for me because something inside just couldn't reconcile this medical model of I'm the expert, you're broken, and I'm going to label you and diagnose you so that I can get paid to fix you. There just something didn't, didn't work for me about that. And so I lasted for 11 years, got wonderful experience, did a ton of great things, but eventually moved on to start Next Element with the desire to bring some of that behavioral health and social sciences knowledge to a broader audience in a more equal relationship. 
did it also feel like a better fit for you personally as well as professionally? It really did. And it was a better fit for my personality. I I don't have the patience to sit for hours and hours hearing people talk about their struggles. I could do it and I was good at it, but it drained me. Mm-hmm. I much prefer faster moving things, consultation, liaison work, presenting, training, coaching, where it's dynamic. I don't know what's going to happen necessarily. I, I like that. It's a lot more interesting, exciting for me. Nate, it sounds as if you also benefited from the education and experience you had in the more traditional clinical psychology world. Absolutely. Yes, I benefited tremendously. And I love to learn. I love the science of these things. I love the idea of evidence-based practices. And I like to, I like to share knowledge and teach and integrate and, and continue to evolve my thinking. So absolutely, that created a great foundation. I still rely on it every day. Well, as you know, my particular interest is conflict. And when I started to learn about what you have done and continue to do in research and modeling about compassion and conflict, I was intrigued. Will you start us off with an overview, I guess, of your work on that? And then we can delve into it a little more deeply. Absolutely. Thank you. And here's kind of how, how the logic works for me and the evolution of our understanding I've been around incredible diversity in my life, all over the place. Now, I'm a white male, so I'm a pretty privileged person here in America. I've not been the majority or a person with privilege many in many places, but I've observed diversity. So the fundamental first belief of mine is that diversity is good, diversity has a purpose, and diversity is part of our ability to thrive on earth. But here's the thing. Diversity necessarily means conflict. You can't have diversity without conflict. So my quest has been, so then why do we have conflict? What is its purpose? And I was inspired by the work of Michael Mead. Um, He's a philosopher, poet, uh, works a lot with inner city youth and, and tribal rites of passage. His premise is that the purpose of conflict is to create. And so that clicked the next thing for me is, okay, so if we are created different and we have conflict, then our duty and purpose is to use that conflict to further create whatever's next. And so then the question is, well, how do we do that? Because conflict is like electricity. It's raw energy that can do a lot of damage, or it can also power a home in a a community. So then the question for me was, how do we harness that power of conflict, which has a purpose to create so that we can create with it? And I had a hunch that compassion was the answer, but the more we studied compassion, the more we realized that it absolutely, the humans were endowed with the capacity for compassion, which is exactly the tool we need to harness the creative potential of conflict, but not the kind of compassion we're used to practicing. Right. I was hoping you would get to that part because I think this is fascinating. So compassion, and and maybe we can talk a little bit later about what what are some of the common misconceptions and problems with our current practice of compassion. But I went straight for the Latin root of the word. And if you look at the etiology of compassion, it comes from the Latin root meaning to suffer with. Calm is alongside or with, and passion means to suffer or struggle. So compassion means to suffer with. It doesn't mean to alleviate suffering. It doesn't mean to suffer instead of. It means to suffer alongside. So then I, I we got to thinking, okay, so conflict 
if we go into conflict with the attitude that we are here to struggle together to create something amazing, how do we do that? And so that's then where our whole model of the compassion cycle and the formula for compassionate conflict evolved was from taking all of our background and research in behavioral psychology and communication science to say, what can we apply to more fully embrace what compassion can do? And then how do we teach people how to do it? I'm going to ask you to tell us more about that in a moment, but I want to ask you to go way back and see if you know or guess what led to your hunch that compassion was the key. My dad, uh, my parents were amazing role models, but I remember vividly, I was about six years old and in Africa at that time, we lived in a village and it was very common for evenings to be spent outside around a fire with people from the village um, cooking a meal over the fire and then just, just visiting. And I would, I would almost every night fall asleep on my mom's lap while I could hear the fire crackling. And I remember just that soothing feeling. And then eventually I would be in my bed. I'd wake up the next morning because she, she carried me to bed. But this night was different because I woke up because of a bright light outside my window. And I got up and looked outside and all I could see was where the embers of the fire had been was this blazing inferno. And I saw two shapes of people, silhouettes of people moving around that. And one of them was tossing the wicker chairs into the fire. And I quickly realized that was the town psycho. That was back in those days, that was the, the possessed, demon-possessed man. Now we know that he probably had paranoid schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. But at the time, and I was so scared, the other person was my father. Oh, boy. Wow. It's hard to tell the story because it's so, uh, it's, it's so raw. But I watched my father connect with this man and was there with him, not, try, not in an adversarial way, but in a way of, I'm going to join you where you are in your fear. And bit by bit, I saw the man calm down and eventually he, he put the chair down that he was going to um, throw in the fire. And the other chair that was left was the one that my father sat in and they started talking. Wow. I can see how that illustrates exactly what you said about being with someone Mm -hmm as opposed to being opposed to them in any fashion. Yeah, it wasn't oppositional. It was, let's meet you where you're at. Let's work together. Now, that was, there was empathy. He showed empathy for this person's suffering, but also there's accountability is that this needs to stop. This behavior is not okay. Mm -hmm. We need to stop throwing the chairs in the fire. And now let's talk. Let's work on where we go from here. There's a creative problem solving aspect in conflict too, because we have a place we need to go. We have a gap to close and we have principles and boundaries that are at stake. So it's more than just alleviating suffering or empathy or doing good for people or giving to a cause you believe in. So I guess that was where I kind of saw it all happen, but those seeds were planted when I was six and I just was searching for how do you teach people to do this? Well, thank you for sharing that. And having taken you backwards so far, I'll ask you to come back to where you are. Yeah, I didn't expect that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So today in your work, you are using compassion, helping people understand it more broadly than we often tend to use it as a shorthand. Tell us more about what you're doing with your training and consulting with people about using compassion, especially in the context of conflict. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, I think we have a compassion crisis in our workplaces. We need more of it. It is compassion is what makes us human, and it's really the key to our survival. Building strong relationships that are safe, that are curious, and that are accountable are so important now. And leaders just aren't equipped with the skills. A typical leader this day is dealing with, they're putting out fires most of the time, wishing their people would deal, would take ownership over the problems. They're overworking for people, wishing their people would develop more capability and autonomy. And it seems like constantly they're being distracted from their work to be able to deal with triangulation and gossip mm. and division and, and, and all of this. So and yet we're aspiring to inclusion. We're aspiring to workplaces where we know that the leader accounts for 70% of engagement. So leaders need support. They need help. They need really good tools to be able to walk into that conflict and be an agent of positive change in there. And so that's our mission is to create the tools that are really easy to start using and yet really sophisticated and effective. Do you find that the leaders themselves are recognizing what the problem is and saying, I need tools, or is the first step to slow down and step back long enough to say, what I'm doing right now is not effective. I need to make a change. Boy, Jane, that's a great question. And it, it brings me back to something that I, I kind of realized when I was doing clinical work. And it's this, people don't come to us because they want to change. People okay. come to us because they want the suffering to go away. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to understand is that we have to meet people in their suffering and then wherever they are in that kind of whole change process, work with them there. So most people that we work with simply want the pain to go away, but then it's a process of gaining self-awareness and understanding how, how do I contribute? What is my role in this? And then give them hope for change that I can be part of the solution and don't have to be kind of feel like a victim of this and then give any personality type, any job title, a kind of a handle, a way to get started because everybody embraces compassion in their own way and kind of gets on the, gets on the merry-go-round from a different place. Do you find that there are concerns sometimes that if I show that I'm compassionate, that means I'm showing weakness? Yes. And that concern is based on an kind of an outdated misconception of compassion, which is that it's soft. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm a hard ass and I, and you want me to be more compassionate, it feels weak to me because soft equals weak. But what we want leaders to know is that vulnerability is one part of compassion, but it by no means is all of it. And compassion involves creative problem solving. Compassion involves being tough-minded on standards and enforcing boundaries as well while preserving human dignity. So, so this kind of emotional connection and vulnerability is, is an important part, but it's by no means all of what compassion is. One thing I also heard you mention was things to get started, easy way to start yeah. on this path. Can you talk more about how important that is for folks who are looking at a situation, as you've said, they are not looking to change. They would like yeah. the pain to go away. Yeah. It seems that sometimes people can feel it's too daunting, but it sounds like you're trying to address that and make sure it's not too daunting. Yeah. There are two things. I do a lot of keynote speaking engagements, you know, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, and I've continued to try to determine what is one thing I can leave people with that they can walk out and do, and they'll experience a positive impact. Mm -hmm. And two things that I, I've distilled it down to. We 
we measure openness, resourcefulness, and persistence as three core competencies of compassion. And generally, we see that openness is the weakest link for most leaders. Really? So in order to be more open, this is the one thing that we, the most important thing leaders don't do that they could start doing tomorrow. And that is disclose your motives. Oh, Tell okay. people how you're feeling and how you want to feel, because that's what's driving us anyways, whether we tell people or not. Everyday leaders get up feeling anxious and wanting to feel secure, feeling uncertain and wanting to feel confident, feeling powerless and wanting to feel in control. That's what's driving them. So why not just disclose it and say, this is what's driving me. This is what matters to me. So my daily actions, my interactions with you are simply an effort to get there. Will you help me? Will you mm -hmm. be part of that? So disclose motives. And the second one is stop helping people non-consensually. Stop committing acts of non-consensual helping. And I have three daughters, so I picked that word very intentionally. Non-consensual anything is a violation of people's human dignity and autonomy and capability. And in the workplace, how often do well-meaning leaders with tons of knowledge go in and help people without their permission and without their consent? And it can start with something as easy as, here, let me show you. But mm -hmm. when I say, here, let me, what I'm basically saying is, I'm just walking right over your boundaries. Mm -hmm. So number one, disclose your motives. Number two, ask permission to help. And those two things can transform relationships. I am particularly interested in this idea of asking permission to help. And even the phrase well-meaning. I think yeah. as we use it most commonly, it's well-meaning, but maybe not so wise. What do you think is behind that kind of behavior? Why do we do that? Why do we get ourselves involved in non-consensual help? A couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is personality. We have researched and see a direct correlation between certain personality types and the tendency to want to cross that boundary and rescue. We call it rescuing. So personality types that are very into problem solving, very analytic, very creative thinkers, it's very easy for them to see solutions for other people. And then without even realizing they're in there trying to fix it and having unintended consequences. The other thing is it's institutionally lifted up. We promote people for this. This mm -hmm. is the biggest cause of the Peter Principle is we keep promoting people for being fixers right. until they're in a position where fixing is not their job anymore. Their job is to facilitate other people to fix, and they don't know how to do that. And so we create this problem in our cultures. Um, and I think also another one is just just our own egos. We want to appear competent. We want to have the solution Research on trust has shown that people that try to establish how competent they are early in a conversation actually drive people away, whereas people that try to learn about the other person and establish connection are actually trusted and seen as more competent. Fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about that, because we certainly have all experienced that. The person who is going to, perhaps briefly, perhaps not, put out the highlights of his or her resume uh -huh. yeah. at the very beginning of the conversation. And I'm trying to not actually roll my eyes externally and maybe not even internally, but it is hard when people start with that. It is really hard. And it's kind of the nature of this competitive up and coming environment. I mean, I go to network events all the time 
And I very quickly can sense a person that is more interested in showing me how great they are than learning about me. I don't want to talk to them. When we go to trade shows, we have tons of people at our booth because we focus all our energy on lifting up and learning about the qualities of the people that come to our booth. And so they just gather around because it feels good. Meanwhile, all the other booths are just extolling the virtues of their (laughs) expertise and nobody really cares. Uh, So, I mean, it just works. I know nothing about this, but I'm going to guess that just the mood of the people who are at your booth is so positive, yeah. both those that are working with you and those who are walking around the trade show, that those who are nearby say, wait a minute, consciously or otherwise, they're saying, I want to be with them. I don't want yeah. to be before these other people. The key is that people need to feel safe and they need to know that you actually are curious about them and they need to know that they can count on something from you, whatever that is. And that's kind of the essence of compassion. Absolutely fascinating to think of compassion in a different way and I think a more authentic way and also a broader way about what it means in so many of our relationships. Is it something when you describe this that people are surprised by or do they say, oh, sure, that makes perfect sense to me? A little bit of both. They usually are surprised because it's so counterintuitive at first and then once they do it, they say, oh my gosh, this feels so right. Mm -hmm. And I want to connect specifically compassion and conflict. So we teach a a formula called ORPO for engaging conflict with compassion. And that means go into the conflict first being open, then resourceful, then persistent, and then come back to open. Openness establishes a place of safety because how can you do conflict if people are afraid? So we have to establish that we are equals, we are human, we are valuable, and we mean no harm. Second is resourceful. We go then to creative problem solving because we want to amplify and lift up the capabilities of both parties to come to the table with resources that could come to bear. And then we go to persistence and we get clear about what matters here. Why is this important to us? What's at stake? What do we have to gain or what do we have to lose? And then we go back to open and say, and we acknowledge this is really hard work. How are we doing? How are we doing with each other? How are we doing with where we are? And that process seems really weird. Why would you get vulnerable first when there's conflict instead of first getting clear about what you stand for? And that's completely backwards to how most people do conflict, but yet so incredibly effective and disarming and invites collaboration so that we are struggling with each other instead of against each other in drama. I think that's remarkably true. Do people, once they get into that and they've engaged with you and they've committed to, okay, I'm going to try this process, find it, I guess it's not always one or the other, but relatively easy, relatively difficult to change the way they've behaved in the past. It's easy in theory. It's easy on paper, but it's really hard emotionally to do because If people aren't used to, for example, disclosing how they feel, or if they're not used to actually caring about someone's feelings when there's conflict, that's hard. Yes. Or on the other end of the spectrum, I just got done working with a whole bunch of regional managers for a national car rental company, and they support their call center reps. And what they realized is persistence was their weak spot. They were empathetic with their call center reps. They were helpful. They were resourceful. But the change didn't happen and they weren't meeting their goals. And what they realized is the missing piece was they didn't get crystal clear about expectations and goals and consequences. Uh And they were afraid that that would be a problem or alienate or cause conflict. But what they weren't realizing is it was actually conflict that was needed. 
And for them, the missing piece was P, persistence. Persistence. Mm-hmm. Transformative. Do you think it's sometimes the persistence piece feels difficult because, oh, I don't want to be overly pushy? Or why do we drop the ball on persistence? Good question. And again, I think it's both a nature-nurture thing, mm. that, that certain personality types simply have a tough time with boundaries, values, commitments, principles. It's just not in their nature to be thinking about that. They're much more relational and in the moment. So it's just hard to go there and conjure that up and, and find what that is for them. But also, I think people have learned that conflict in their past has led to casualties. And so anything that could cause conflict or escalate or set a boundary or push back, they've seen that turn into people getting hurt. So they want Mm -hmm. to be as far away from that as they can. Mm -hmm. Not that that will actually solve anything. No, they just don't have good role models or examples for how it's done um, in a healthy way. And so it sounds like that's the key part of your work is helping people see there are tools. You can approach this more effectively and to help them start to use those tools. And as, as you're describing it, it sounds like it needs to be a start. It's not that we will all change ourselves overnight, but with support and practice and some learning tools, we can get better at this. Absolutely. You know, I feel like a good model has to meet three criteria. You got to be able to draw it on a bar napkin in 30 seconds because that's where you're going to be talking about it with somebody. And you don't have a lot of time for someone to visually say, I get it. Second thing is in two minutes, it has to tell my story. It has to resonate and relate and give me a way to talk about my pain. And in five minutes, it has to give hope. It has to give a way to tell a new story and start fresh. And so that's what we want to be able to do. Even in like our two-hour course, we want people to be able from there already go out and start conducting meetings differently or have a different performance conversation or address unwanted behavior right now in a different way. Well, thanks so much, Nate. This has been great fun to start to learn. And I do say start to learn about the work that you're doing. If people would like to learn more about the work you're doing and get in touch with you, how would they do that? Thank you. I would, I'm actually going to give you two websites. Uh, the first one is nextelement.com. And this is our company website. And particularly on there, I would guide people to go look at our leading out of drama model. This is where we have all of our tools, assessments, train the trainer certification, public courses on what we've talked about today. I would also guide people to another website called The Compassion Mindset. And this is kind of our just launched enterprise level system for bringing this into cultures, into big companies at scale, both vertically and horizontally. And there's all kinds of resources on both of those where people can learn more. And I can say I've been on both of those websites and there are resources and there there's some clarification and also some invitation to learn even more about how this could be helpful to you. So I encourage folks to take a look. I think you will enjoy that very much. Well, thank you, Nate. I've enjoyed this very much. This has been a great conversation from my perspective, and I appreciate having you with me. You're welcome, Jane. I appreciate your great questions and um, being able to talk about some things that are so important. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please share it. Leave a rating or review. Subscribe through one of the major apps. For anyone new to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing is free. You can also find the show at craftingsolutionstoconflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. 
Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.